Alright, time for another domain query here. This one is courtesy of a longtime reader and friend of the blog, Kapios. And it has to do with a comment that he left. Uh, he actually left three questions. Uh, this is a comment that he left on my Pesach post uh, about Passover. And uh, I'll read his questions out in full uh, from Kapios. Quote, Do you follow any particular denomination? Or do you think denominations is, uh, sick, a divide-and-conquer tactic? Also, what do you make of the Easter and Christmas holidays in terms of ancient pagan customs? Is this a coincidence, or some sort of myth to dismiss? End of quote. So, the, the title of this domain query episode is going to be uh, The Saturnalia Miracle, and I'll get to exactly why, and you'll see why, um, I hope, if I can find the video, uh, in the subsequent video, um, which deals with the issue of Christmas and Easter being kind of plugged in around pagan holidays. But to answer uh, Capios's first question, I am a non-denominational Christian. I do not get caught up in these uh, long-running scriptural debates about, uh, you know, or not scriptural debates, but um, ecumenical debates about whose interpretation of Christianity is correct. If I had to be precise and technical, I would argue that I am, to use the phrase of our beloved and dreaded Supreme Dark Lord, peace be unto him, Vox Dei, a Niceno-Constantinian Christian. What does that mean? It means that I subscribe basically to the Nicene Creed uh, of Constantine, Emperor Constantine, which asserted that as matters of fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ was both God and man, that he was born of a virgin, uh, that the Immaculate Conception did happen, that the Virgin Mary gave birth to an unblemished child, and that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God. Uh, that is what I believe. If you, if you are a Christian, you will recognize these sentiments because they define what it means to be a Christian. I believe that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins, specifically. Not just for the sins of all mankind in a kind of abstract sense, but for me personally. And that he came back to life on Easter Sunday, or on you know the Resurrection Day, three days after he was crucified, and that he did, in fact, defeat hell and Satan. I believe all of these things. I declare and I witness that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I believe that the time will come when every knee will bow, or will bend, and every head will bow, and every voice will cry out that Jesus Christ is Lord. I probably won't be alive to see it happen, but that's okay. Um, that is what I believe. I am not interested in the extremely tangled and difficult Gordian knot of whose doctrine and whose rituals and whose emphasis on what particular passage of the Bible is more correct than the other. I will say 
this, that I would cut through that Gordian knot of confusion and animosity and uh, interreligious strife by looking at things very logically. All of that mishigas, if you will, that, that mess, um, arises from the fact that the original church, as we understand it, was established in Rome because the Roman Empire was the most powerful, preeminent military power at the time. Uh, and the Jews, the early Christians, you know, converted Jews who became Christians and there spread the word both to Jews and Gentiles, uh, had to establish churches in various parts of the Roman Empire. And eventually they made their way to Rome itself and they were persecuted very badly for doing so. But their religion did become the state religion of the entire Roman Empire after a while, after uh, the persecutions stopped, and especially after Constantine became emperor, uh, there was a very clear change in the tone and tenor of uh, Christianity. So when Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire, things really began to change. But there is no doubt that the Catholic Church can trace its lineage directly back to Rome. Where did the schisms result? Well, there was a great video from Kings and Generals, which I will try to include in the post, um, which talks about how the, the Orthodox Church split off from the Roman Catholic Church. But the Roman Catholic Church was there first. Okay, There can be no question about that. The Roman Catholic Church was there first. So if anybody can lay claim to having uh, the original mandate, if you will, from Jesus Christ. It was the Roman Catholic Church. However, that is not the first church. The first churches existed long before the entire concept of the Catholic Church ever existed. The first churches existed in the Levant and in Anatolia and in North Africa and eventually in Greece and Rome. Um, now, why, to, to, to Kapios's point about, do you think denominations are a divine and conquer tactic? Yes, I do. Uh, there is no question that we fight a great and terrible enemy. I mean, it says so right there in scripture. We, we grapple with an invisible energy, an, an, an invisible enemy, an enemy not of uh, flesh and blood. Um, Satan, the great psychopathic, immortal, prideful serial killer, mass murderer, thrives upon our fear, misery, and suffering, even of Christians. I mean, he delights in watching Christians sin. Uh, I know that whenever I commit sins, as I continue to do, unfortunately, um, Satan revels in it. He revels in my mistakes. He loves the idea that someone like me can be brought low and destroyed because I spat in his face and said, I will not serve you, I will serve God, even though I don't serve him very well. So when I make those mistakes, of course, Satan is empowered. And he feeds on that power by separating people, dividing them from each other um, in ways that the Lord does not intend to divide us. There are divisions that are natural, normal, and good. Uh, and they have to happen. I mean, for instance, it is natural and normal and good for a man to leave his parents 
and to take up with a woman and marry her and have children with her. That's a good thing. That's a natural thing. That is biblically mandated. It is a, a wonderful thing. It is not natural and good for a man to take advantage of his parents or to argue with them constantly or to sow division between them. That is a very bad thing. So you, know, you have to look into the nuances of this. Um, yes, the denominations are a tactic. Yes, also, the denominations are necessary in some ways. Because if you look at Scripture, the churches were always considered to be uh, good in some aspects and bad in others. I mean, the Apostle Paul made it clear that he considered some of the churches to be in error and, need, and badly in need of correction. So if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, well, I mean, if you look at the epistles, who is he writing them to? He's writing the epistles to the various churches that he came across, the, the church in Thessaloniki, uh, the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, um, you know, all of these were letters written to these churches to correct them because they had strayed from doctrine, from, from the Word of God. Uh, that being said, denominations are also necessary from time to time to force corrections. And I'll explain why, in the sense that if you look at the Catholic Church, um, where did the Nicene Creed come from? Well, it came from uh, the first great heresy. If you read uh, Hilaire Belloc's The Great Heresies, it's one of the best books you'll ever read on the subject of interreligious strife. Hilaire Belloc was a devoted, a devout Catholic, and he investigated the great schisms and problems of the Church, the Catholic Church, w with a very critical eye. And he came up with a lot of good stuff, a lot of great ideas and explanations, and his writing style was brilliant. He, as a defender of the Catholic Church, looked into the history of the Church and said, these are the five places where, the five major places where the Catholic Church was riven by heresy and split off. And they happened for these reasons. If you look at the very first great heresy to shatter the unity of Christendom, it was um, the, uh, the, what's it called? Uh, crap. The Arianism, that's it, Arianism. Uh, 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 basically, there was, in the early days of the church, there was this huge debate over whether Jesus Christ, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous now, but there was a huge debate about whether Jesus Christ was um, man or God, whether he could be half and half, whether he could be human or divine. If he was entirely human, well, then he couldn't be divine, and, you know, the Therefore, he was just a prophet and a great and mighty prophet, but nothing more than a man. And that's where you get the, 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 the Gnostics. The, the Gnostic heresies come from that point of view. They come from this idea that Jesus Christ was nothing more than a mystic. Um, and unfortunately, with, with that approach, you get all sorts of bullshit uh, coming out of the woodwork. I mean, the amount of nonsense that you'll find from the Gnostic sects is astonishing. Uh, and there is good reason, by the way, I mean, I know I'm going down a few rabbit holes here, but there is good reason to think that one of those Gnostic sects of Reformed Judaism uh, eventually came to be known as the Ebionites. And as I have detailed it at considerable length in uh, one of my past posts from back in like 2014, so, you know, this is a long time ago, maybe 2015, 
no, it was 2014. Um, the Gnostic sect of the Ebionites eventually became what we understand of today as proto-Islam. That was the earlier carrier for what became Islam. So the the Aryans were uh, the sect that uh, really espoused the ideas of Jesus Christ as a mortal man, not as the Son of God. And the funny thing is that Arianism was actually the predominant belief among the soldier class and among the civilian population of the Roman Empire for a long time. It was the nobility and the elites that believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And it took a tremendous battle for the Arians to be squashed and driven out of the church. Um, it was, in fact, it was at the uh, Council of Nicaea that this happened. Most people don't know this because they haven't done the research, but the legend of St. Nicholas comes from the Council of Nicaea. And it comes from the fact that Nicholas, uh, you know, Bishop of the Church of Rome, went up and punched the Bishop Arius in the face because of the heresy that he was espousing. He was arrested for his transgression and he was thrown in the clink and uh, his, his, his robes were taken away from him along with the uh, parchment scroll, which is, you know, of course, very, very valuable. I mean, it's a, his, his Bible, basically, which was written out in parchment, so um, not, not on uh, papyrus, but on animal skin. Uh, so it wouldn't have been parchment. What was, what was, it? What was it? What's the word for it? Um, I could be wrong. But uh, basically, the, the Bible was handwritten out for him. And remember, this was back in the days, like a thousand years before the printing press. So each one of these Bibles would have been incredibly valuable. So that was taken away from him along with his, his, his um, bishop's robes. And he was put in a jail cell to rot uh, until a council of his peers within the Nicene Council, within the Council of Nicaea, determined his fate for having the audacity, the temerity, to attack another prince of the church. The legend says that while he was in the clink, uh, and Jesus Christ came down to him and asked him, My son, why are you in this cell? And Nicholas responded to him, Because I love you, my Lord and my God. And the next morning, his captors came to find him sitting very calmly. You know, he'd been under watch the whole time. They found him sitting very calmly in his jail cell. His robes had been restored to him. His Bible had been given back to him. Uh, there was no way that he could possibly have gotten out, but he, somehow these things were restored to him without him ever having lifted a finger. That is the basis for his sainthood. I mean, we recognize Saint Nicholas as this, you know, as, as Santa Claus. Um, that's not who he was. He was a righteous deliverer of the Lord's justice uh, and a defender of the Church's doctrine. Moving on to... Um, some of the more serious heresies, like the Albigensian Crusade. The Albigensians, if you read Belloc's book, they, the, the Cathars, they were not a bunch of calm, quiet, you know, hippy-dippy vegetarians, the way that they have been depicted. They were serious heretics. Uh, heresy 
or schism from time to time is necessary to revitalize the church and to rebuild the doctrinal foundations upon which the church is based. This has been true throughout the Catholic Church's history. It has been true throughout every church's history, actually. Denominations are indeed a tool to divide. I mean, if you look at um, the, the great schisms between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, that was a tragedy, a, a terrible tragedy, but it was also an inevitable one, um, created by a confluence of circumstances. If you look at the Reformation, though, that was necessary in a lot of ways. I mean, it was tragic. There's uncounted millions of dead from these endless religious wars. But it was also in some ways necessary because the Catholic Church had grown too complacent, dangerously corrupt, and extremely secular. It had turned well away from the idea of saving souls. I mean, there, the, the, the Catholic Church had gotten to the point where the Bibles were written in Latin, right? So all the Bibles were transcribed into Latin, as, as is the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, everything was done in Latin. Um, and the, the Bibles were inscribed on, on uh, parchment, of course, on vellum. So they were extremely expensive, and they were hand-copied by monks sitting in monasteries. So they were, of course, chained to the benches, uh, of the, chained to the pews, because each Bible was incredibly valuable. So the, the ordinary people would go in to read these Bibles and uh, they, they would see the, the wealth and opulence of the church and the people at the time were very poor. And they would see these incredibly rich Bibles and incredibly wealthy monks and bishops and friars. And they would be very angry and justifiably so because it turned out that less than a quarter or thereabouts of the actual clergy at the time before the Reformation could read and write in Latin. And these are the very people who are supposed to be delivering God's message. Um, they couldn't take God's message and transcribe it into the Vulgate, into the dialect of the ordinary people, because they themselves didn't know what it was. So there was a need, a desperate need for reform. And that's where the Catholic-Protestant schism came from. It came because Martin Luther... Uh, transcribed the Bible from Latin into German. So this was one of the first instances of true transcription from High Latin into Vulgate. And he could see that his peers, I mean, Martin Luther was a man of incredible learning, he could see that his peers did not understand uh, the message of the, of, of, of the word. Um, he, Martin Luther also investigated exactly what the uh, Babylonian Talmud, in particular, said, uh, you know, it was uh, the compilation of Jewish law and Jewish oral tradition and written tradition. And he was horrified by what he found. And this is the reputation that he's had ever since of being an anti-Semite. He wasn't an anti-Semite. He was a realist. He read what the Jews themselves had written about the Gentiles. And he said, this is horrific. This is devastating. This is terrible. These people cannot be allowed to live with Christians. Um, now, the result of that was severe persecution of the Jews. I don't agree with that, but I can, I understand why he said what he said, because that is what the Talmud actually says. That it's written in there, okay? Uh, all that stuff about, you know, 
Gentiles being basically beasts in the shape of men and that they can be enslaved at will and, and so on and so forth. That's in there. All right. It's there in Hebrew. Um, we have Jews on, on my own blog who read that and can tell you about that. All right. So to, to, to get back to Kapios's question, yes, division, denominations are a divide and conquer tactic. Absolutely. They are a tactic of the enemy. Sometimes, though, they are deeply necessary, and I take that view. I do believe that schisms are sometimes deeply necessary to clean out the junk and the driftwood and the accumulated filth of churches that have strayed too far from the path. I believe that the Catholic Church is long overdue for another schism, because from top to bottom, the Catholic Church has now been infected, infested by sodomites and uh, pedophiles. Uh, and they have made it their mission in life to destroy the foundations, the moral foundations of the church. If you don't believe me, read Milo Yiannopoulos' book, Diabolical, uh, in which he lays out all of the evidence. I mean, he himself is gay. He's, you know, married, quote-unquote, to a black man. Uh, this is not somebody from whom anyone should take any kind of advice about uh, living a life of rectitude and... Um, you know, uh, morality, sexual morality in line with what God ordained. Neither, by the way, am I. Okay, so nobody who listens to me should listen to one single word I say uh, without deep skepticism, at least when it comes to the subject of Christianity. I'm not a good Christian. So whenever I talk about these things, don't, please don't take my word as gospel. It's not. Okay, please take the time to read up on this stuff do your own investigation, check if I'm right. I believe I am, because that's based on what I've read. Maybe I'm wrong. You should not accept what I've said uncritically, is all I'm saying. Okay? Um, so that answers the, the, the first half of Kapios' uh, queries. Also, uh, what do you make of the Eastern Christmas holidays in terms of ancient pagan customs? Uh, that's, that's nonsense. Okay. Um, this is very easy to answer. That is a myth. Uh, and that has come down to us from many centuries of, frankly, uh, miscommunication and utter drivel. The, the way to look at it is, you know, when, uh, there's, a, there's a great episode of the Big Bang Theory called um, uh, the Bath Gift Item something hypothesis or something like that, in which um, Sheldon Cooper, and I, I'll find the video and put it in there someplace, uh, Sheldon Cooper basically says, I don't celebrate Christmas because it's, uh, you know, Christmas was a, uh, a made-up holiday where the ancient Christians al realigned the, the fact of Jesus' birth to match the pagan uh, festival of Saturnalia because the, the Romans would celebrate Saturnalia uh, at around the same time, and therefore, in order to appease the Romans, uh, the, the early Christians changed the date you know, retroactively just, you know, change the date of Jesus' birth. Now, this is garbage, okay. Uh, for one thing, the recognition of the date of Jesus' birth has two different measurements. The Roman Catholics measured, and most Protestants measured according to one calendar, the uh, Gregorian calendar, the Gregorian? Uh, the Julian, well, I mean, whichever calendar, I forget. Um, the Orthodox Church recognizes the dates according to a different calendar. Um, I apologize for the mix-up, but 
it's a totally different calendar. And uh, they, they use their old calendar to, to calculate the date, but so their date for Christmas is actually like two weeks after um, the Catholic version. So Catholics celebrated on the 25th of, or okay, most Christians celebrated on the 25th of December. I celebrated on the 25th of December. Not because there's anything particularly, you know, dogmatic about that one day, but that's just the date that's been recognized. Okay, so that's the date. Uh, Orthodox Christians celebrate it in early January, like first week of, end of first week of January, basically. Why do they pick, why do Orthodox Christians pick that specific date? They pick a date that is exactly nine months to the day after the Feast of the Annunciation, I believe. That's what it's called. The Feast of the Annunciation is the date that is universally accepted as the date on which the Virgin Mary uh, was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Um, that's all it is. So, exactly nine months after that is when Christmas should be, by most reckoning. Uh, the Catholics recognize it as slightly different because of counting conventions and because of difference in, differences in tradition. I don't care about that. Okay, I just don't care about that. All I care about is that the Lord and Savior was born on a particular day, and it happens to be the 25th of December by common reckoning. Okay, fine. Saturnalia, the Roman pagan festival, was held a week before that. There's a great post from John... Uh, C. Wright, probably the greatest living grandmaster of science fiction alive today, in which he goes into this in some details. And I'll see if I can find it. It's really worth reading in full detail. He, he, he basically just excoriates this myth that it was all about making the pagans feel welcome and uh, preserving their traditions. Here's the thing you need to understand. This is absolute and arrant nonsense because of one simple reason. The pagans absolutely hated Christianity when it first appeared on the scene, because Christianity, unlike the pagan customs of Rome, stated very plainly that your ultimate allegiance is to God, not to any mortal ruler, but to God. The Romans believed that you could worship whoever you wanted, um, but you had to worship the emperors as god-kings. The Caesars were gods themselves. Christianity said, no, there is one God, the Father of Jesus Christ. There is one King of this earth. Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God. There is one ruler to whom all other rulers must, in the end, bow. Jesus Christ. That's all there is to it. This absolutely infuriated and enraged the early uh, contemporaries of the early Christians, the pagan contemporaries. They hated the fact that Christians refused to worship idols because they're the, all the pagan faiths were about worshipping idols. Um, has there been cross-pollination into Christianity from pagan faiths? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, this idea of uh, pine trees and snow and uh, gift-giving and all that, that, you know, that, that's not from the early Christian traditions. It's not. That is an innovation that has come through over the centuries. It's been adopted from cold northern climates. And there's really nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's just an adaptation that makes a very special day even more special. Okay? Uh, the, the miracle of Jesus' birth is acknowledged in terms of the, the star that guided the three wise men, the Magi, uh, to the manger where Jesus was born, the adoration of Christ, 
the uh, the hymns that are sung, all of these wonderful things, those are unrelated to the later traditions that came along about, you know, the the boughs and the snow and the gifts and all that. It doesn't matter. What matters is that Jesus Christ was born on a particular day. Um, likewise, the idea that Easter was uh, conceived as some sort of uh, alignment with a pagan festival. No, it wasn't. It, it absolutely wasn't. Here's where Easter comes from. Okay. The earliest, the earlier tradition upon which Easter is founded is Passover. All right. Passover predates Easter by a good two and a half, well, what, one and a half to two thousand years, something like that. Uh, the the archaeological evidence that we have for the Book of Exodus is much stronger, as it turns out, than was initially thought. There is considerable evidence out there now that Exodus actually happened. Not in um, the New Kingdom period, but in the Middle Kingdom period of Egypt's history. Um, most people have been looking in the wrong place because of one specific transcription error in the Bible, uh, that the Pharaoh was Ramesses. Uh, that apparently was inserted later on by Hebrew scribes. But the original texts do not say anything about the Pharaoh being named Ramesses at all. It was a different guy. It was some other Pharaoh. Uh, so historians and archaeologists have been looking in the wrong place for the evidence of Exodus. But Exodus, as far as we can tell now, probably did happen. And we now have some evidence for, you know, this 3,000-year-old event actually taking place. Exodus and Pas Exodus resulted in the tradition of Passover, which was what my post, my original post, which prompted these questions, was all about. The Passover feast is very clearly coincidental with the crucifixion, the capture and the crucifixion, the execution and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is a very good reason for this. It's in the Bible for a reason that this that all this happened. Nothing in the Bible happens by accident. It's not, you know, just a bunch of made-up stories. The stories are there, the patterns are there, the ideas are there for a reason. Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb of God. It is his blood that is spilled uh across the, if you will, the lintels and doorposts um, of all the world, all the believers, so that when the time comes for vengeance against the sinners, for justice actually, against those who have sinned, the avenging spirits of the Lord will pass over those who have bent the knee, bowed their heads, and accepted Jesus as Lord and King. There is a very clear parallel between uh, the lesson of Passover and the death of Jesus Christ. So that is why, that is a big part of the reason why Easter and Passover take place at around the same time. Easter uh, commemorates the resurrection of Jesus. Passover commemorates, uh, so I mean, to go back a little bit, Easter commemorates the resurrection of Christ and therefore the victory of Christ over death and over Satan and over hell. Passover commemorates the victory of the Lord 
over Egypt and the foundation of Israel as his people, his nation, his chosen people, and the, the, the establishment of the covenant of the Lord with the people of Israel. Just as Passover marks the foundation of one covenant, Easter marks the foundation of another covenant, the new and eternal covenant that has blessed us all ever since. This is the origin of Easter, not any kind of pagan tradition, nothing like that. The idea that Easter is founded in some pagan tradition is garbage, it's nonsense. The idea that Christmas is founded in some sort of pagan tradition is equally garbage and nonsense. Um, so, I, if I, I mean, I could easily keep going on about this for another hour and a half, but uh, ain't nobody got time for that, and certainly my voice is not going to hold out long enough for that. Uh, I hope you have found this educational uh, and enlightening, and I hope that uh, this will spark some interest among those who hear it to go and look at the books and links and uh, other things that I will post up. And uh, if you have further questions about this, uh, please feel free to ask. Uh, do not, as I said, take even one single word of what I've said as gospel, because it's not. Go do your own research. Go look into it yourself. I hope you will find that uh, what I have said is true, because this is what I have read. This is what I have parsed, gleaned out of the vast uh, sea of flotsam and jetsam that's out there. And these are the conclusions that I have been led to. Uh, so with that, I bid you farewell, and I will see you uh, on the next domain query, which will be posted on Easter Sunday.